if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 13. We actually, uh, several weeks ago, right before Palm Sunday, we were still in the book of Acts. We have been working through the book of Acts verse by verse. We covered the first 12 verses a few weeks ago, so we are going to be at verse 13 of chapter 13 this morning. And I'm going to be teaching from the New King James Version this morning, so if you would like to grab a Bible, we have some back there if you need one. Um, but let me pray one more time before we jump into the Word. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We pray that this morning you would just be glorified and magnified, Lord. Father, that you would convict, that you would exhort, that you would rebuke, that you would encourage, that you would rebuild, that you would refine us and make us more like you, Lord, through the power of your Spirit, through the power of your Word, Lord. Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So if you're at Acts 13, 13, say, I'm there. Awesome. So real quick, before we jump into the text, let me recap. It's been a few weeks since we were in it, right? We were in Acts chapter 13, and we saw Paul and Barnabas and the guys going out there in their first missionary journey. They're going out, and they were at this place called Paphos. If you remember, there was this gentleman there, this governor named Sergius Paulus. He was a, a, a Gentile, a, a Roman-positioned governor. But there was this Jewish sorcerer named Elymas. This guy, Bar-Jesus, was another name, right? And he tried to say that he was like this awesome prophet and that he was of God, but yet he stood and tried to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, Paul wasn't going to have that, right? <laughs> Paul stared him down in the spirit. <laughs> and then he said, man, you bring nothing but deceit, and because of that, the Lord's going to temporarily blind you. And that Jewish man that was there and proclaimed to be of God was temporarily blinded while the Gentile ruler put his faith in Jesus Christ. And again, we talked about this is the reality that, yes, the gospel was to go first to the Jewish people. And some believed, but not all believed. But then it was to go out to the rest of the world. Amen? Amen. And so here we are this morning. And I love it because I'm looking around the room at a lot of Gentiles this morning. <laughs> Praise the Lord that the gospel is not just for one group of people. Praise the Lord, the gospel is for every man, every woman, every race, every color. Amen? Amen. And so this morning, we are going to be seeing three things. We're going to see reciting of the word. We are going to see the rejection of the word, the history of it, and the reaction to the word. And Paul is just preaching this phenomenal study. We are going to hit it at a level where I'm not going to, honestly, we have like 40 verses to cover. And there's like, I think, 18 to 20 Old Testament references in this section. This is the section where when you have your little cross references in the middle of your Bible, man, go home and check those out. Amen? Study this thing. See what else is in here. But we're going to hit it as well as we can this morning. So again, starting at verse 13, we're going to see the reciting of the word, the situation here. It says, verse 13, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. <laughs> so again, here's Paul and Barnabas and his friends. They're out. They're traveling. I think it's funny because we just have some really straightforward facts here. Right? We have them leaving Paphos. They're going to Perga, and then from Perga on to Antioch of Pisidia. Not the same Antioch that's in Syria, where they were first called Christians. Remember, that's where Barnabas went and grabbed Paul, brought him over, and they, they served there. 
This is a different Antioch, different city, okay? But the reality is, if I'm writing a book that I'm trying to make really mystical and holy and all these things, can I tell you what I would probably do? I'd probably leave out small details about like geography and things. <laughs> can I tell you what's so cool about this? Is this is a real book telling truth, telling real history with real places that you can go to and visit today, right? This is not some mythological thing, right? I think about the Greek gods. <laughs> you have all these stories of these people that are like throwing, like, I don't know, like tridents and lightning at each other from these weird planets and stuff. It's like, dude, let's go to Perga today. You could go see it, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of awesome that it's here. It gives it validity. It gives it truth. And the reality is, is that there's something to this where Paul didn't say, hey, let's go out to this particular place today. It's kind of like the Lord's just leading them step by step. Amen. And I, some, there's something about the Christian life. And I think about the last 15 years of walking with the Lord, and I'm like, man, I went from here to here to here. Real places, and the Lord had all kinds of cool works there. And I know you guys have all the same experiences, right? In the sense that you follow the Lord, He leads you one step at a time, and it comes together to just do an awesome work in Him. Amen? And so at this point, they get here. They're, they're at this synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. And so this is actually in the region of Galatia, which I thought was cool. We're studying Galatians on Thursday night. This is the trip they believe that spurred the whole idea of, man, we got to tell people not to be legalistic, not to turn back to the things of the law, to Judaism and to, to the Judaizers, men that were coming in and telling people, that's good that you have Jesus Christ, but you need works. You need to do things in addition to the cross. Now, let me be clear. James 2.17 tells us that faith, if it does not have works, is dead. Amen. We should be living to where works come out of our life. Amen. But I ain't saved by those works. I'm saved because of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that's where our, our holiness is. That's where our righteousness is. It's in Him because He took on our sin. We become the righteousness of God in Him. And so at this point, they're going out here and they go to the synagogue. And see, this is another example of these guys going, we have to go to the Jews first. You know who else did this was Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Jesus, remember when he went to the synagogue in Luke 4? It was Luke 4, I believe, verse 16 through about 30 or so. And one of the key verses, I believe, is Luke 4, 18. Where, if you remember, he walked into the synagogue and he opened up Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he read it. And that's the section that says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive, to proclaim recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And remember what he said? He said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, Guys, I'm here in your synagogue to read you the Old Testament scriptures of Isaiah the prophet and tell you that this speaks of me, Jesus said. His goal was to reveal to those Jewish people, to, the Israel, to Israel, that he was the fulfillment of the Messiah. Amen? Amen? And so he tells these guys, you go do this. <laughs> this is the Great Commission. You start where? In Jerusalem. Then you go to Judea and Samaria. Then you go out to the ends of the earth. And here we are in McKinney, Texas. Amen? Amen. <laughs> That's so cool that the Lord is doing a fresh work this morning through his spirit with the same gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they go in there and they're sitting there waiting for this invitation. Because it says in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the words of the synagogue sent to them. And they actually said to them, right? They said, if you have any word of exhortation for this people, say on. You see, Paul's no dummy, right? He knows what they're going to do. He comes in. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He's a visitor. He's an educated Jewish man. 
So beforehand, I guarantee you there's a conversation that says, hey, if when that opportunity comes, it has, would come every Sabbath day if there was an educated visiting Jew, they could come up and share based upon maybe the scriptures that are read that day. And so Paul, again, is following the example of Jesus here. And what happens is this invitation, they go, hey, you have a word? Can I tell you, Paul is loaded with a word for these guys. <laughs> this is every preacher's dream, right? I am studied up with the word of God, and someone comes over and says, hey, do you have anything to like, tell us about the scriptures here? This is every Sunday for me, by the way. So I'm glad you guys keep coming. <laughs> but the reality is, right, like it's not for Paul's glory. It's not for the pastor or preacher's glory. It's for the glory of God. And so he's loaded up with the word, and I love it. We're going to get this awesome Old Testament survey from, from Paul here. And can I tell you before we get into it, here's the point of the survey. That man is often faithless, but God is faithful. And see, the reality is so many opportunities God has given people to accept his ways, to believe upon him, to invest their faith in his plan for salvation. But so many times man rejects an unbelief. And Paul is bringing in a warning to these people saying, do not do that with Jesus Christ. And so let's look. We're going to do a little run here, 16 through 25. It says, Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when, when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I like that phrase, he put up with them. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, speaking of David, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John the Baptist had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course or ministry, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So a big run of scripture, but I love the very opening to this in verse 16. What he says, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God. See, that invitation is not just to the Jews in the room. That is an invitation, that phrase, those who fear God, that would be for Gentiles that show up to synagogue because maybe they aren't fully converted into Judaism. Maybe they aren't practicing Judaism, but they're intrigued and they revere the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, right? And so what this means is, hey, you're drawing in and you're desiring to know the Lord. Can I tell you what the Lord says in his scriptures in Zechariah 1.3? He says, return to me and I will return to you. In the book of James, chapter 4, he says, Draw near to the Lord, and the Lord will draw near to you. See, Old Testament, New Testament, the Lord's desire was always to have reconciliation with us through His provision and His ways. Amen? And so what Paul is doing here is he shows up and says, This is for everybody. This is for the Jew. It's for the Gentile. And he says, at this point, he says, I'm going to preach to you that Jesus is Messiah. 
He says, but let's do a little review of the Old Testament, right? <laughs> and again, this is the section where I had to look at this and pray over it this week. Do I take five weeks to take this one half of a, of a section of Scripture? And so it was like, you know what? There's so much history in here, I couldn't exhaust what's in here, even in five weeks. <laughs> it's like, we're going to hit this at that level where I'm going to give you what's here. I encourage you. If this is news to you, man, go home and study this. It's beautiful. We see Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Judges, First and Second Kings, and I'm sorry, First Second Samuel. We see references to Deuteronomy seven. There's so much in here, but let me give you a quick little rundown of what's here. In verse 17, Paul is focusing on God's record of faithfulness towards Israel, beginning with the time they dwelt in Egypt. See, if you remember, they went into Egypt. Remember, Joseph was actually exalted to a great position. It was a good thing at first, right? But then after the Pharaoh of Joseph went away, after Joseph and that Pharaoh died, a new Pharaoh came. And that was not good for the people, right? For 400 years, they were there. They were in bondage. But the Lord promised in Exodus 6, 1 through 4, to deliver the Jewish people with a strong hand. And what he promised them, he said, I will give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they are strangers. So he says, not only will I deliver you out of this situation, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, the promised land as we've heard, right? The land that's flowing with milk and honey, right? I'm going to bless you as you trust me in these promises. But then if you go read the book of Numbers, <laughs> we see that's kind of a book of unbelief, right? There's this idea that you, you measure the census of how many came in. You measure the census of who's, uh, you know, who came into the wilderness and who came into the land. There's great unbelief in that book. And remember, it all stemmed from that spying out of the land. And many of them said, hey, I don't know. We can't take those guys. We're too afraid. Caleb and Joshua, the two guys that were like, hey, we can take them because we have the Lord. Amen. And see, they were blessed. The Lord said, hey, I see you guys that believe in me. You will be blessed in this. But the fact is, this generation that will not believe... They're now going to wander for 40 years. Now, can I tell you what's crazy is it says that the Lord put up with their ways. <laughs> not only did he like not kill them, <laughs> he sustained them in the wilderness. Like, think about it. You have kids that come in as like toddlers at the beginning of these 40 years. And at the end, they've grown. They still have clothes. They have shoes. They have food. They have things, right? That like they survived. You're in the desert. You're in the wilderness. It's hard. People are getting freaked out right now about food shortages, right? Imagine being in the desert with nothing. And the Lord's like, hey, you guys are tired of manna, huh? <laughs> All right. I hear you complaining. Here's some quail. They're like, ah, man. Remember the meat in Egypt? And they start fantasizing about going back to the place that they were in bondage at. Can I tell you that this is our tendency as well? I hope we don't look down our noses at the, at the wandering Israelites. Because can I tell you what happens? Satan loves to make us romanticize the chains of bondage. We look back on sin and go, remember those good times, man? Remember when we would do this, that, and the other thing? You don't remember the chains, though. You're only talking about the fruit and the things that you enjoyed in that time, but you were in absolute slavery when you were over here. Because of God's delivering hand, He's brought you to this new place, but you have to walk it out in faith. You have to be willing to step into these places where it seems so impossible but our God with him, then nothing is impossible. Amen? Amen? And so God, yes, he put up with their ways, but he remained faithful. And it says that, look, he brought them into the land of Canaan, the next generation. Deuteronomy 7.1 gives us the allotment of the land. So they actually distributed the land just as the Lord had instructed them. But if you read the book of Judges, <laughs> the hearts of the people began to stray from the Lord again, right? 
I believe it's Judges 21, 25, the very end of the book. It says, in those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I don't know if you live in a culture like that right now. <laughs> I feel like the reality is, man's ways, according to the flesh, do not align with God's ways, right? So if everyone's living according to what's right in his own eyes, you ain't walking in the will of God. <laughs> And see, they've totally abandoned the Lord, even while they were in these places that the Lord had given them. But then the Lord is so faithful, it says, right, that the Lord kept raising up deliverers. He kept raising up judges for them. Verse 20 says that, right? The word for judges, don't think a guy with like a robe and a, a little hammer at the bench like in the courtroom, right? These judges are deliverers. They're rescuers. They would come and they would sustain the people. For hundreds of years they did this, until the time of Samuel. Samuel was the last judge, and he was a prophet. 1 Samuel 3.20, he begins his ministry, and his job was to tell the people, hey, I'm going before the Lord to consider the things that you should do. Let me guide you, because God is our king. It was a theocracy, right? But then the people came, and they said, we don't like theocracies. We want a monarchy. We look at the kingdoms around us. They have a king, man. They have a throne. They have a guy that looks so strong that leads them into battle, a tangible king. And what did Samuel do? He told him, he said, man, you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to send your children out to war, not his own. He said, you ready for that? And the people said, no, 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 we want this. We want to be like them. And so the Lord gave him Saul. You read the story of Saul. He's, a, he's not good news for Israel, right? Starts out rather humble, really scared more than anything. But a little bit of success just makes this man wicked. He starts giving out wrath. Oshas, he starts, he almost kills his son Jonathan for defeating the enemy at one point. He's crazy, right? And so as this thing goes on and you see Saul's term as king, notice that it was 40 years that he was king. We had 40 years of wandering, 40 years of his kingdom, of his reign. 40 is a number of testing and judgment in scriptures. And I believe that God gave them Saul to say, this is not what I would desire for you, but in this will, I'll allow this to you. And for 40 years, you're going to know the pain of this decision. And you know what? If the Lord would have stopped right there, we'd go, man, for thousands of years, the Lord took care of Israel. Just bail on them already, God, right? <laughs> in our flesh. But God is faithful, amen? amen? And so what he does in this section is he says, he then raised up King David. And see, King David, man, everyone said King David's the greatest king Israel ever had. Until the Messiah comes, the fulfillment of that promise to David, he is the best. Today, go talk to Jews and Israelites about King David. <laughs> they know, man, they want King David, right? They want that kind of lineage and legacy to continue. They absolutely exalt King David. But the reason I believe that Paul brings up King David is just so that he can make reference to the promise of 2 Samuel 7, 12, when the Lord said, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. In other words, your lineage, your, your, your generations after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And see, this is the promise. Remember, David said, God, I want to build you a house. He said, I want to build you a temple. You're too good to be living in a tent tabernacling, Right? The Lord says, look, I don't, need to, I don't need a house. I'm bigger than that, first of all. <laughs> but secondly, you're a man of war. You have blood on your hands. I'll let your son build it for me. But because you've desired such a thing, because you do have a heart after God's own heart, what I will do is I'll make you a promise that there is one coming from your loins, from your seed, and he is going to be the deliverer, the ruler, the king, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ we know now. Amen? 
And so all this is to point at the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. But notice in verse 24 when he brings up, he says, John the Baptist, he preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. What that means is John the Baptist as the forerunner, as Isaiah 40 verse 3 or verse 8 talked about, that he would come and be the forerunner of the Messiah, that one would come in the spirit of Elijah, right? John the Baptist showed up and he told everyone, what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to prepare for the coming of the King, of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. The Lord in His goodness, after hundreds of years of silence in the prophets, He sent John the Baptist to prepare the hearts of the people before Jesus showed up. And see, Paul is trying to explain to them, you guys should have been ready because he told you, I'm not the Messiah, but the one that's coming, He is, right? John said of Jesus that He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in regards to His suffering and sacrifice. But he also said, I believe it's John 1.34, he says He's also the Son of God. And see, the reality is the Messiah would not just be the deliverer from the line of David, but He would also be God the Son. Amen? Amen. And so look at this next section right here, verse 26 through 31. It says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning Him. And though they found no cause, no cause for death in Him, they asked Pilate that He should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, they took Him down from the tree, speaking of the cross, and they laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And see, he's given them the Old Testament text to say, hey, God is faithful. God sent you deliverers. He sent you this promise of David's lineage. And now he's even sent you the very Savior who is Jesus. He is proving himself faithful. He says, but here's what happened when the Messiah showed up. He says, y'all rejected him. Well, that sounded Texas, right? Y'all rejected him. I don't know if Paul said y'all, but I did. But he says, you people rejected him. <laughs> and the reality is here that in this moment, he says, look at everything that happened. He says, the fact is, when he showed up, he says in verse 26, he says, this word of salvation came to you. The very salvation of God, the plan for us being delivered from sins, for us to actually receive eternal life. He says, that came to you. But the reality is, you fulfilled God's plan in this. You rejected the Messiah. And see, he says, why did that happen? It's because you didn't study the Word of God correctly. He says, they didn't know the prophets. They didn't hear the voice of the prophets. He's talking to the religious leaders that rejected the Messiah. That should be terrifying to us who sit in this room today, I hope, right? We handle, I handle the Word of God a lot during the week. It's literally what I do, right? And as I'm handling it, I'm thinking, Lord, please don't let me miss what your will is in this Word. And see, the Jewish religious leaders, what they did, they took the Word of God and they really made it about themselves. They made it about the Messiah they wanted. They made it about the Messiah who would come and give them what they thought they needed. And they misinterpreted the scriptures. Jesus said in John 5, 39, right, he actually told them, he said, you study the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. 
And these are they which testify of me. He told them this while they were rejecting him, right? John 5, there's a lot that's already happened to Jesus at that point. The rejection is open. It's clear at that point. I think about Hosea 4, 6, the idea that for the lack of knowledge, knowledge of the word, the people perish. And see, in this case, here they are, they've rejected, in their corrupt rejection of, of the Lord, of Jesus, they actually, remember, we talked about this on Good Friday. They took Jesus and they said, hey, give him to Pilate, we want him to be crucified. But can we talk about the fact, we talked about this a little bit, but all of the prophecy involved in the fact that a thousand years before Jesus even showed up, we're told things in Psalm 22 that they would cast lots for his garments. That he would be surrounded by dogs, speaking of the term that they would use for Gentiles. That he would be pierced through the hands and the feet. That one would come and hang upon a tree. These things were prophesied. And I'm sure that the religious leaders thought, well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. We're not going to be those guys. We're too righteous to be those guys. We're too, there's no way that we will do such things. But they did them. And what caused them to do it was because they did not know the word. And in unbelief, they rejected the plan of God. But I love verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. <laughs> How cool is that sentence right there, verse 30, right? It's just so brief. It says, but God raised him from the dead. When everything seemed like it was over. I mean, imagine. The, the one that proclaims to be the Son of God, that proclaimed to be the Messiah, the leader of all of these people who put their faith in him, he dies. Imagine if they're just thinking, well, what happened? Is his word true? Is it true that if I believe in his word and believe in him who sent him, that I can have everlasting life? I just don't know. He's dead. How do we ask him if it's true? But God raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, he proved that Jesus was not deserving of the wages of sin, which is death. Which also means that everything he ever said was true. Which means that his words of John 3.16, of John 5.24, that we will be able to have eternal life as we put our faith in him as Lord, Savior, Messiah, and God the Son. Amen? Amen. And so in this section here, he says there's even eyewitnesses in verse 31. Paul says, look at 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about this. There's hundreds of people that saw Jesus resurrected. <laughs> they all experienced this. This wasn't just one guy having some weird trip, Right? There were many people, the witnesses on the road to Emmaus, right? You have the hundreds that are mentioned in Corinthians. You have the apostles themselves. You have the women at the tomb that we talked about. He says, it's true. You guys rejected him, but God is still so faithful that he resurrected Jesus that you could still receive this message of salvation that I'm warning you about this morning, Paul says. Look at verse 32 through 37. It says... And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, which is Psalm 1610, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Paul says, here's the deal. Look at Old Testament survey. God is faithful. 
you guys have rejected over and over and over. Then he says again, recently, Paul would say, this generation has rejected the Messiah, but God raised him up. What he's doing in this section is to explain that the Messiah was always prophesied to rise again. Amen? He was always prophesied that he would rise up. It said, he quotes here in verse 33, he quotes Psalm 2-7. And that psalm refers to the Messiah as the anointed one. And it says what it says here. It says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And see, so first of all, God's saying, you are my son. There's a capital S there if you pick up on that. So he's speaking of the anointed one, the Messiah. So the Messiah will also be the son of God. But also he says, I will have begotten you. There's an element where we always think of begotten as being born, which Jesus is. We know Jesus came and was born in the flesh and everything, right? We understand of God, but born on this earth in that sense. Lived the perfect life as the perfect man, but was completely God. Amen? But also that word begotten. It re relates to the idea of being exalted. And so in this case, you are my son who I will exalt. And can I tell you, there would have to be a very clear, very distinct form of exaltation for the one that's begotten as the son of God. Can I tell you what it was? It was the resurrection from the dead. <laughs> no one else I know of in history has ever resurrected from the dead. <laughs> See, people have been resuscitated from the dead, but they die again, right? <laughs> Jesus never died again. Jesus lives, and he always lives to make intercession for those that come to God through him. Amen? The book of Hebrews tells us that. And the reality is, as he lives, it says in Romans 1-4 that according to the spirit of holiness that he lived out that perfect life, and because of the resurrection from the dead, that proves that he is the Son of God. So Paul says, hey, Jesus said that he was the Son of God. Psalm said he would be. Verse 34, he brings up Isaiah 55-3, saying that there would be mercies of God upon the Messiah. Can I tell you the mercy of God was that although men rejected Jesus as Messiah, God resurrected him. And see, again, it shows that, yeah, man may reject you, but I, God, say, you are my son. You are the Messiah. And even if man rejects you, it still doesn't change the fact of what is truth. And this morning, there's many things that people want to say is truth. Their truth is fluid. It changes every minute, it seems like. God says, you can have your truth however you want it, but it's not going to be aligned with mine until you submit to me. And that is truth. This right here, again, this is truth. Amen? Amen? And this is what Paul is using. I love it. He uses the Word of God, just like we're doing this morning. We don't have to go find a new program, a new book system, a new kind of like growth strategy. I'm a marketing guy, right, by trade originally. So it's like I think about all the things we try to use to convince people to do things. Paul says, I have everything I need. I got the Holy Spirit. I got the Word of God. We don't deter from that. This is what we want to use. Amen? And so, verse 35, Psalm 1610, he quotes. He says there, he says, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. First of all, it states that the Messiah would be holy. Not just a good man after God's own heart like David, because David had some sin in his life, right? Yes. God's good. He forgave those sins. But the Holy One, the Messiah, He'd be holy and perfect. And because of that, He would not see corruption in the sense that He would see decay in the grave. See, He goes on, Paul says in 36 through 37 there, He says, David, look, He served His own generation by the will of God. He did what God required of Him. But when He fell asleep, which is a term they use for saints in the sense of dying, <laughs> on this earth He was buried with His fathers and He saw corruption, meaning decay. You could go, you know, you could go to the tomb at that time and say, where's David's tomb? There it is. There's some bones in there. He decayed. You go to Jesus' tomb today, there ain't no bones in there. 
Jesus has risen again. He has been resurrected by God. And that's why it says in verse 37, He whom God raised up saw no corruption. And again, it drives home the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're told that in Romans. But we're told that the wages of sin is death, speaking of eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God, free to us because of what Jesus did upon the cross, we can have everlasting life. Amen? Amen. And see, the only way that could be is if Jesus is perfect and lived out and did everything perfectly fulfilling all of these scriptures. And what Paul is saying, go check out the tomb. Just like we talked about on Sunday, Jesus is not in there. Because He was perfect, He was holy, and He is indeed the Messiah. And everyone in this room needs to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 38 through 41. It says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5 here. He says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So what Paul is saying here is he says, I'm giving you this message that it would be known to you that through Jesus Christ I am preaching you the forgiveness of sins. He's moving from a historical argument to an apologetical argument to now doctrine. And he says, look it, how do you get forgiveness of sins? It is through one man, it is through Jesus Christ. He says, and not only do you get forgiveness, what does he say here? He says, you also get justification. Someone once said that word justified. Justified never sinned, right? That's the idea of justification in this loose term. But can I tell you what it means? Really? <laughs> not only is the Lord covering the sins like he used to do in the Old Testament, they've been completely removed in Jesus Christ. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Right? Not as far as north as to south, because you keep going north, you're eventually going to come south, right? East and west. You're going east, you're always going east. That's how far he's removed your sin from you when you trust in him. But justification goes to say, I'm actually, not only have I removed your sins, it's as if you never even did this now. That's insanity to us. <laughs> has anyone ever wronged you? You don't have to raise your hand. The answer is yes. <laughs> you may forgive them. But to say, hey, you know what? It's like it never even happened at all. You really mean it? And you actually, I just see righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only do I not like see your sin, but I give you righteousness. That's nuts to us. <laughs> and Paul says, this is why it's the good news. That's why this is the gospel. And it's also the gospel because the law could never do this for you. See, Acts 13.39 serves as the thesis statement to the book of Galatians. We started the book of Galatians this week, the first chapter, right? You have to be saved by grace through faith. If grace is the water, faith is the hose that gets you the water. You need to put your faith in the Lord's grace in what came through the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm giving you this message that you won't be judged for your iniquities. He says, let me remind you of Habakkuk 1.5, which is, again, to us, what a random reference, right? I love the book of Habakkuk. The name Habakkuk means to embrace or wrestle in the original language. And at the beginning of the book of Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk is wrestling with the Lord because he's like, why don't you judge these people that are so wicked, these people of Judah that love you and, and say they, they love you, but they don't live like it. They're walking in all of the sin. Where are you to judge? And what does the Lord tell them? Oh, I'm going to judge them. <laughs> I'm sending an army that's going to destroy them. Remember, Habakkuk kind of backs up like, whoa, dude, like that's too much, right? Like, I didn't want that, right? He's like wrestling with the Lord. But by the end of Habakkuk, he embraces the plans of the Lord and says, look it, even if there's no fruit on the vine, whether I'm in a valley of just death, man, <laughs> the Lord's still good. I don't understand your ways, but I believe you for what it is. But the Lord said, look, there's despisers. There's people that will not believe my ways. And Paul says, don't be like your forefathers. <laughs> he says, man, believe upon the name of Jesus. You can be saved. You can believe upon everything that he has promised. He is faithful. Amen. Look at verse 42 through 43. We're going to start to see the reaction to the word. And we're almost done here. It says... So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So I love this. Paul preached the Word of God, amen, from Scripture, and he preached the Gospel message. When he did that, what was the response of people that were hungry? They were just starving for the truth. They said, please come back next week and tell us these things. <laughs> this is it. Just keep teaching them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing. See, you guys are great. I do that every week just because I love that you guys know that verse. We need to know that. Why do we do what we do here? You're not here for my opinion. God forbid. <laughs> You're here for the Word of God. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, the discerner of the heart, Hebrews 4.12 says. And at this point, as he's preaching the word, these people show up, and I love it, it's the Gentiles. They're like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. Are you telling us that even we, in our supposed wickedness, we can be saved? This is a message of hope, Amen. This is not a message of condemnation in the sense that, hey, bad news, you rejected Jesus and now you're dead forever. It's if you have a breath in your body, you still have time to repent. But we're not promised tomorrow. He says, do this today. And these guys go, man, keep preaching this. But I love in verse 43, it said that there were Jews and devout men of God, right? Devout proselytes. They were intrigued by the words that Paul and Barnabas said, and they started to kind of follow after him. And I love what Paul and Barnabas tell these guys. Again, glimpses of the book of Galatians. What did he tell them to do? He told them to continue in the grace of God. See, they brought them a message of grace. That's what we've been talking about this morning. We did not deserve all of these opportunities that the Lord gave over and over again. The fact that he would still come put on the flesh to die in our place, that Jesus came to save us. God is faithful, and it's by grace we have been saved. And he says, stop trying to use the law to justify yourself. You can't do it. The law condemns you. It doesn't justify you. <laughs> but Jesus, he can either be your justifier or he can be your judge. He can be your advocate, as 1 John 2, 1 talks about. If we sin, we have an advocate for the before the Father. And remember, all judgment has been committed to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the judge is Jesus Christ. And when you lay out that guilty plea and say, I accept that grace. I am a sinner who needs grace. I need much more than I could ever deserve, man. I need your mercy. I need grace. The Lord God, who is the judge, Jesus Christ, steps down and becomes your advocate. 
you're going to get off the hook on that one, right? <laughs> but only because of what Jesus did. There's no game where it's like, hey, let's talk about your works, though. Remember the thief upon the cross next to Jesus? He says, I believe in you. He says, then today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't tell him, oh, man, I got bad news for you, man. You didn't do good enough good works before this. You didn't work hard enough. Be careful of these doctrines, right? And can I tell you, we slip into these things as Christians because I go, man, I went to church this week. That's why God loves me. I served in children's. I served in ushers. I served in worship. Wherever I served, man, that's why God loves me this week. No, we're saved by grace. God loves us. Let me be clear. Before we ever loved Him, God loved us. Amen? Amen. But we still have to respond to what He has given us in His grace. And so verse 44 through 48... It says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So he quotes Isaiah 49, 6 there. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. <laughs> so I love this. The next week, they, Paul and Barnabas, they're like, hey, this is great. We've told guys to continue in grace. We have these Gentiles and Jews that both desire to hear this again. They show back up as faithful preachers. They show back up the next week. And they preach the Word of God. They preach. It's so funny because I think about what we do on a Sunday morning. Every week we open up a book that is at the most recent point, 2,000 years old. The world thinks we're kind of crazy for what we do on a Sunday morning. They think, why don't you open like Homer's Odyssey or like, I don't know, Harry Potter or something and read out of that, right? They don't understand that the power of the Word of God when I speak the word, I love it. You may not even be hearing what I'm telling you right now, but the Lord is convicting you of some other thing that has nothing to do with this study right now. And the Lord is using it through the power of the Spirit. He's just working. And these people, man, it created revival, just like we saw in Nehemiah 8. When they taught the word to the people, the people said, oh my gosh, we deserve death. How do we respond? He says, be saved by grace. And see, all these people came out. The word of God was preached. The word of God was received. And they went out and they were excited about the word of God. They went and told their friends. They went and told their co-workers. They went and told their family. They said, you've got to come hear this message. Well, when everyone shows up, it says almost the whole town showed up. And what do these Jewish men do, these prominent leaders? They're intimidated. They're envious of the fact that, man, this guy shows up in one week. He's got the whole town here. We've been trying with all of our growth strategies, right? <laughs> We've been trying so hard to look powerful and popular and prominent. And this guy shows up preaching something totally opposite of what we've been telling the people to do. And everyone's here. And so what did they do? They raised up persecution because of their envy. But see, before that, what Paul tells them is said, hey, you guys have... Let me get the exact terminology here. I want to say this right. Look at verse, again, 46. He says, You've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. That's a big statement to me. That means there was an availability of some sort that says, Hey, the Lord is willing to extend this to you. But you have judged yourself not willing to receive it. 
I don't know. That's a scary statement. And I pray that this morning, if you say, well, I don't know, maybe I'm not like these Gentiles over here in verse 48 that said they were appointed to eternal life. You see this play, right? You judged yourselves, but these guys they accepted were appointed. Can I tell you what to do with this? Decide today to follow Jesus Christ. <laughs> that's, the, that's what you should do. We could have conversation after conversation of stances of people from hundreds of years ago what this section means. Do, does that mean I was chosen? Does that mean I'm elected? Does that mean I'm not elected? Does that mean Arminian, Celt? You need to decide who Jesus is. Plain and simple. And can I tell you, if you've chosen Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've been chosen. <laughs> Plain and simple. It's funny. It's like people are like, well, that sounds too weird. That's too... Hey, you want to be part of the elect? Choose. <laughs> That's what Chuck used to always say, right? I used to love it. He'd say, people come up and go, hey, I'm elect. Well, that's great. So then you're elect. And someone says, well, I'm not part of the elect. I want to be. Well, then choose. Well, I don't want to be. Then you're not part of the elect. <laughs> you're like, what? That's crazy. I don't know how this works. His ways are higher than my ways. Amen? But I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in the weeds of let's argue this thing out about how this happened. It happened because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It happened because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by grace, we have been saved through faith. Amen? Amen. He tells both these groups, this is the message. One group received it. One group did not receive it. And at the end of the day, look at 49 through the end. It says, The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you see, back when he told them in verse 47, right? In 47, he had told them, we are just going to simply do what the Lord has commanded us. And he quoted Isaiah 49, 6. He says, of the Messiah and of the gospel, it's been set as a light even to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22 it says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. Amen? Amen. Everyone, everywhere, no matter what race, what ethnicity, what you know, male, female, whatever you are, you need to put your trust in Jesus Christ today. And they, as they rejected it, they said, hey, this is what's going to happen. For the most part, you guys are rejecting this message. It's prophesied. So what we will do, we're not going to quit because people rejected the message today. We're going to keep going to anyone that will receive the message. Amen? Don't give up just because some people are refusing and opposing it. And as a matter of fact, they raise up persecution to the point to where they stir up everyone in town, everyone that's prominent, against them. And so Paul and Barnabas go, well, I guess we have to move on. This is what happened with the death and stoning of Stephen, right? It made the gospel go out to other places. The Lord is always in control. These people play themselves, right? They chase out Paul and Barnabas, and now they're going to go to Iconium. And guess what they're going to go do there? They're going to teach the Word of God. Wherever they go, they're going to preach the Word. Because, again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So wherever we go, we're going to go preach that. And they just shake the dust off of their sandals. Jesus commanded His disciples back in Luke 9, 5. He said, if anyone doesn't receive you, shake the very dust off as a testimony against them. In other words, if you remember in Ezekiel 33, it said that I'm a watchman, right? Like the job of Ezekiel was to tell everyone about Jesus, I'm sorry, about God of Israel and repentance in Ezekiel. We know now Jesus, amen? But he tells them, I'm like a watchman now. The blood won't be on my hands. The Lord tells them, you won't be responsible as long as you tell everyone. You hold that message back, there's a responsibility and a judgment in that. 
So here, what they said is, hey, we told you, we wipe our sandals of it and say, this is the testimony. We came into your town. We told you we don't even want the dust of rejection to leave with us, right? He says, this is a testimony. I love it. They went out and they got expelled. And see, the enemy tried to do this with Jesus. If we just get rid of the man, it'll get rid of the message, they thought. But see, as Paul and Barnabas leave, who's still there? All these new converts that believe in the true word of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're filled with the Spirit and with joy. <laughs> Can I tell you, Paul and Barnabas, they leave in joy, filled with the Spirit, but those new believers there, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, self-control. you got a bunch of transformed people because of the word of God. i got news for you. The Lord sustains his own church. Paul and Barnabas are not responsible for sustaining the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, according to Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said. There's all these new people here in this place, and God is going to work through every one of them through their lives because they've committed to following Jesus Christ, because they've committed, they've accepted and received and believed. They were appointed to eternal life, and they confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen. Wherever you may be, However new to the faith you may be, can I tell you, the Lord has something for you to do for His kingdom. You're not saved by that work, but it's a work to do because of the faith that you've been saved by. Amen? And so at this point, what we see in this is just the, this, this movement of Paul going to serve the Lord. And man, we, it's such an exciting section of Acts that we're going to get into next week as we see the Lord continuing to just do great things to all kinds of people. So whoever you are this morning, man, the Lord desires to save you from your sin. And Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The graves of Buddha and whoever else, Muhammad or whoever, you can go see the bones there. David's bones, right? Jesus is risen again. He's the only one who can make the claim that he is God, and he fulfilled it. You have to deal with the fact of, hey, am I going to believe in faith, or am I going to reject it? and have to deal with the actual consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. And we know, according to Jesus' word, in Matthew 25, 41 and 25, 46, there is a true literal hell. It was not made for you and I. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But God says, look it, there is eternity. You have to go somewhere. You don't have to go to hell. <laughs> what you can do is be saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your love. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, Lord, how great you are. And Lord, this morning, just while we're praying, Lord, I pray for all my fellow believers in here that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would give us joy, that you would give us all that fruit of the Spirit as we go out and continue to tell others about you. But Lord, I pray for anyone in this room right now that if they have not already put their trust in you, that today would be the day of salvation. Right where you sit, in the silence of your heart, you can begin this relationship of being saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ by repeating this prayer, just in the silence of your heart, right where you sit. You'd repeat it after me. You'd say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I trust in you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.